and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, we still got that 30-day trial thing. If you haven't signed up to get all of the uh, stuff um, that is only available to paid members, uh, you still have time to sign up and get it. It'd be great if you could. Um, I'm going to keep pointing out that if everybody who listens to this thing would become a paid member, um, we would be able to do all sorts of amazing things and um control the weather and and um bake 12 minute brownies in seven minutes and it'd be just awesome if everybody could pitch in and and do that for us we are a for-profit enterprise but part of our model is relying on people who like what we're doing and think it's important and you know it's hard to quantify what you get from what we do but we think it's worth what we ask and we really hope to get as much support as we can um and we're grateful uh to anybody who wants to jump on the pirate's gif uh today's episode is uh ad free but i'm going to put a plug up at the top and just unilaterally declare that um today's episode is brought to you by divided we fall david french's new book which is dropping next week and i'm going to do a special podcast with him about it it's great and um, um, so I just want to get that out there as well. So uh, just finished the draft of the G file. I talked about this Princeton thing where the Department of Education is actually calling the school's bluff. The school went out and said that it's, um, you know, gave, issued this public letter confessing, as everyone is supposed to in this confessional age, this sort of secular religious age, uh, to profound sin, in this case, embedded racism, systematic racism, um, at times even intentional, according to the letter. Um, and so the president says all this about the institution that he runs. And <laughs> the Department of Education is like, wait a second. Um, you've been uh, affirming in legal documents to us as part of your participation in all sorts of federal education programs uh, that you do not discriminate on account of race. And now you're just openly declaring that your school is a hotbed of institutional and systematic race, racism. What gives? And, um, you know, under normal circumstances, I admit this is kind of, it's a little trollish and all the rest, but I think it's totally, at the end of the day, it's totally fair game. And I, I really kind of love it. As a friend of mine says, it's a Christmas morning story. Um, as I point out in the in the G file, if you you know, if you're the president of a normal corporation, I assume Princeton's incorporated in some in some capacity, and you say say you're the president of McDonald's, and you say my company is um, awash in uh, bad hygiene, and we have salmonella everywhere. Well, first of all, you know your stock price is going to plummet. But also you would expect the Department of Agriculture or whoever the right regulators are to investigate the claim very, very um, assiduously. Uh, if you know the Department of Education has been prosecuting for-profit colleges that have been lying about the educational benefits and all the rest that they provide, and the left loves that, well, what, what is the rationale for not 
um, holding an institution accountable when it says it's, you know, a couple clicks shy of a clavern, which is sort of how that piece reads and, or that letter reads. And, um, I just think it's, it's really, it's delicious. And I think it's actually, excuse me, a net positive thing for the simple fact that so much of the national conversation these days, which I know is a topic I talk about too much these days, but so much of our politics are defined by um, bogus, exaggerated narratives um, on the left or the right. And um, I think there's something wonderful about, you know, you know, people always said, don't take Donald Trump, literally take him seriously, um, which as uh, a friend of mine says, is now devolved to hypothetically, take Donald Trump hypothetically, because you're just supposed to come up with the most plausible, abstract interpretation of what Donald Trump says. And if that sounds good, then that's how you're supposed to take, you know, his crazy statements. Well, if we're supposed to take the president of arguably the best college, best university in the country, you know, seriously, forget literally, then him declaring that his school is a bastion of racism should be taken seriously. And what I love about it is that my guess is, is that after a thorough investigation and being put through the legal ringer to provide all sorts of documents showing that they, in fact, didn't lie on their paperwork to the Department of Education, we'll find out that, in fact, it was all hyperbole and the president of the university wasn't telling the truth and they will not find systemic racism at the school. They will not even find much uh, isolated racism at the school. And the only racism that I would bet they find any real evidence on is probably bigotry against Asian Americans. Because, I mean, that's what we know is going on at Harvard. And, um, you know, it just sort of calls to mind, I have, I didn't write about this in the G file, but there's this great phrase from Confucian philosophy called the rectification of the names. And uh, Confucius says, and I, I, I pulled it up, Confucius says, a superior man in regard to what he does not know shows a cautious reserve. If names be not correct, language is not in accordance with the truth of things. If language be not in accordance with the truth of things, affairs cannot be carried out to success. When affairs cannot be carried out to success, property, uh, proprieties and music do not flourish. When proprieties and music do not flourish, punishments will not be properly awarded. When the punishments are not properly awarded, the people do not know how to move hand or foot. Therefore, a superior man considers it necessary that the names he uses be spoken appropriately, and also that what he speaks may be carried out appropriately. What the superior man requires is just that in his words there be nothing incorrect. And there's another quote somewhere I remember reading because I've written about this before, you know, where basically societies get out of whack when the language we use no longer describes the reality we live. Um, this was the, you know, this is a major theme of vast amounts of anti-communist literature, whether it's Solzhenitsyn or, or Milan Kundera. It's, and to me, it's sort of a, it's, it's one of the things that we really don't appreciate about why life seems so disordered these days is that the language that people are using to describe reality doesn't jibe very well with the reality that we're actually living. And so, look, racism is a real problem. Uh, reasonable people can disagree about how big a problem it is. Um, 
but the idea that that America has had no racial progress is nonsense. The idea that things are worse racially than they've ever been before is just pernicious nonsense. Um, you can go go to humanprogress.org and just it's that that's the website that um my friend Marion Tupi, who was on the podcast earlier this week, runs. And just look at the racial indicators or get uh, Marion and Ron Bailey's new book about the 10 trends every smart person should know. There's all sorts of stuff in there. I mean, by almost any metric, forget the last 200 years, the last 30 years, last 50 years, America's wildly, amazingly less racist and bigoted than it was. And even when you look at things that, you know, you have to take with an asterisk because there are surveys of people's attitudes, you know, uh, the number of people who say they um, wouldn't move, they would move if um, a black person moved next door. You know, it used to be the number of white people who would say, yes, I would move was big majorities, even like, I don't know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, and now it's like low single digits. And you can say, well, that's because it's socially unacceptable to, ex to express your racism. Fair point. But the fact that it's socially unacceptable to express your racism is a huge sign of progress. And so this disconnect between the, um, the rhetoric of race right now as defined by places like Princeton or, the, or MSNBC or all the 1619 Project people and the reality of what it is in, real, in, in our lives, there's just such a huge disconnect between the two. And... Um, and I think it's one of the things that makes it impossible for people to have real conversations with each other about some of this stuff, because it has so much less to do with the facts and the substance and so much more about um, what team you're on, that if you question police brutality statistics um, one way or the other, whether they're the ones that make the case that cops are... Um, unredeemable racists or the ones that say cops aren't unredeemable racists, someone is going to get pissed off at you, not because of the actual arguments that you're making, but because of your declaration of being on a side. And I know I talked about the shibboleth stuff last week, so I won't belabor the point, but I, I think it's a, it's, it's a really important thing. And if, you know, I could snap my fingers and have a rectification of the names by which people didn't wildly exaggerate or cherry pick, you know, scary examples to sustain a narrative, but rather actually, you know, use, you know, describe reality as it actually is. It'd be interesting to see just how many political arguments would, would evaporate overnight, you know, from debates about big tech to Antifa to racism. Uh, you can go down a long list. So I write about that. I also write about, um, Bill Barr's comments about how numerically um, the the national lockdown, as he calls it, um, is the greatest imposition on civil liberties in um, American history, second only to slavery. And uh, Hugh Hewitt tried to do a little work cleaning that up and making a point which I think is somewhat defensible, just doesn't go very far. Um, that what Barr was pointing to was the the num the sheer numbers of people who were affected by lockdowns is really huge, and so even if the um, impositions on their civil liberties are small, just in the totality of it, um, it's a big deal. 
But the problem as I, I sort of work through in the G file, the problem with that is that it's just, it's BS when you actually take it seriously, never mind literally. First of all, um, the numerical point is, um, well, no, first of all, there is no national lockdown. There never was a national lockdown. Um, and if there was a something to be called a national lockdown, the person who would have been doing the locking down would have been the president of the United States. Um, there were state lockdowns, there were local lockdowns. Um, and to talk about a national lockdown um, in this context, I just think is, is kind of stealing a base. But secondly, um, if this numerical standard is right, if you're just like talking about measuring things not on the quality of the imposition on civil liberties, but simply on the quantity of it, Barr and Hugh are just completely wrong, just factually wrong. Um, first of all, the number of slaves, the highest population of slaves, according to the census, was in 1860, which kind of makes sense, right? Because by the next census, there weren't any official slaves anymore. Um, and there were about, I think, I think I said four and a half million or four million, just shy of four million slaves and 500,000 um, free black people. Um, and so just on the, if, if you're just looking at quantity and not quality, then the pandemic is actually worse um, on a quantitative le level than, um, than slavery was. Because in America, the 330-odd million people, all of them to one extent or another were affected. Again, we didn't really actually have a national lockdown. It's a messy um, distraction to talk about one. But uh, under the lockdowns, let's say, uh, you still had 330 million people who were affected. And you only, only and I use that in air quotes, um, only had 4 million um, blacks affected by slavery. So numerically, uh, the pandemic or the lockdown or the imposition, whatever we're supposed to be calling it, was actually worse than slavery. But of course, that's ridiculous. Because you don't do, uh, you don't measure these things by quantity. You measure them by quality, by the moral quality or lack thereof, or the immoral quality of of the transgression. And um, uh, and and in fact, if like, which is sort of this is uh, anyway. My I was going to add. If you were going to stick with this numerical thing, I don't think slavery even comes in second. It comes in probably eighth. You can talk about, you know, mandatory vaccinations or seatbelt laws or any of these things have affected vastly more people as a very minor imposition into civil liberties, but nonetheless, they're real. Um, but that's sort of the point is it's trivial to and trivializing to, to talk about it that way. Um, and that's my real problem with what Barr was doing in his sort of sleight of hand there. By saying, you know, he wants to sort of make it clear, well, of course, slavery was worse. But then he says, just as a numerical matter, the, the national lockdown um, comes in second only to slavery in terms of the, the number of people it affected. Well, again, that's not true, as I just explained. But second of all, what he's doing is he is he implanting in the listener's ear this notion that somehow um, lockdowns or whatever, you know, or social distancing mandates or mask mandates or whatever the policy responses to a pandemic is somehow in the same morally problematic orbit um, as slavery is. When it's just an apples to oranges comparison, there is nothing morally 
problematic about impositions on civil liberty during a pandemic. There's nothing in classical liberal theory that says the state doesn't have the power during times of war, during times of national disasters, and during pandemics to impose on people's civil liberties. It's just, it's, and there's nothing, there's nothing morally illegitimate about it. In fact, there's a moral obligation of the state to do that kind of stuff. Now, that doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. That doesn't mean they can't get carried away. That doesn't mean groupthink and all that stuff can, can, can play in a part. But it doesn't start from an inherently evil supposition the way slavery does or the internment of the Japanese does or all the things that Woodrow Wilson did uh, during World War I. Uh, you know, and, and the number of things that Woodrow Wilson did during World War I affected lots and lots and lots of people. The, 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 the censorship, the political prisoners, the public bullying and harassing of people, the demonization of Germans, and go on and on and on and on. Um, defenders of that stuff at the time would say it was all necessary for the war effort. I think that's BS when you actually look at it in detail. But my only point is, is that when you start talking about when you start a sentence saying, except for slavery, and then you talk about some other civil rights violation, you are sneaking in the idea that the second civil rights violation starts from some illegitimate or immoral presumptions. And it just simply doesn't. George Washington imposed um, quarantines in Philadelphia to fight yellow fever. There was nothing illegitimate or immoral or improper about doing that. You know, argue about whether it was necessary policy-wise, and that would require knowledge and expertise I don't have, but I think you can kind of see the point. And um, um, and <clears throat> that's just is what drives me crazy about how this administration has consistently, and Barr is guilty of this, has consistently tried to turn the national response to the pandemic into some partisan culture war point-scoring game. And I know I've talked a lot about that, but um, it really disgusts me. And the way in which people, look, I don't like masks. I am not a mask zealot. I don't, you know, I don't wear them outside. Um, I, you know, unless for some reason I'm going to be at some mass gathering thing, which because of my misanthropy and, 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 and mild, uh, agoraphobia, I don't do a lot of that. Um, but you know, and so I have no problem with people complaining about masks. I certainly think a lot of cities have screwed up lots of things, you know, in terms of schools, in terms of business closures, in terms of counterproductive rules about essential businesses and all that. Those are all fair criticisms. But it is just simply not appropriate to suggest, or just it's just, just simply not real to suggest that, that all of these things were a conspiracy they're or based on fake science or incipient, um, you know, uh, authoritarianism, which is what people are trying to turn it into people like Charlie Kirk and, and dozens of other people. And, um, what drives me and among the things that drives me crazy about it is that's that kind of thinking is going to prolong the, the pandemic itself. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a huge black mark against Trump and the Trump administration that they have encouraged this so often um, doesn't let Cuomo or, or any of these other, you know, blue state governors off the hook for their mistakes. Um, but turning it into Patriots and freedom fighters versus Orwellian, 
you know, uh, uh, you know, pandemic tyranny um, is not helpful to anybody. And it's also just not reflective of the reality, which is why we kind of need a, re- I know, a, um, what about, what was I talking about here? Hold on. Um, sorry, I got distracted. Um, a rectification of the name. Sorry. Uh, I had a cat doing strange things. So, um, in the Wednesday G file this week, and look, I, I go back and forth about this, how much I'm supposed to recapitulate what I've been writing about and how much I'm not supposed to. I hear from some people who really like it. I hear from other people who really hate it. Um, I still feel really uncomfortable doing these solo podcasts. It just feels weird to me. Um, and I know I repeat myself and I know I say, um, too much, but anyway, uh, I am, I just can't let go of this electoral college stuff in part because I'm such a federalism, you know, uh, enthusiast. And I think it really is the solution to so many of our problems. And I talked about that a bit with Ben Sass again this week. Um, and I'm going to talk about it with David because we sort of see eye to eye on this stuff. And I, what, what just drives me crazy is how people can't see the point that, you know, the electoral college or federalism, um, are ways that you actually improve the quality of people's lives and actually make democracy work. And so I did this sort of thought experiment where I said, imagine if you could actually turn the whole planet into a single solitary country, sort of like, you know, in Star Trek and a lot of these things where it's like one world government and, um, which I, in theory, have no problem with maybe in a thousand, 500 years, depending on how technological process progress goes. Uh, I do think the whole world should be democratic. Um, and I don't think it's a terrifying prospect if the whole world were democratic, but the only way it could work. And the only way I would have buy-in with that is if you had some version of global federalism. And it just seems so obvious to me that you would have to, unless you just wanted to plunge the planet into war. Uh, you know, I did the math where imagine if you had, if you turned the UN into what Tennyson called the the parliament of man, right? And you had it and you had the general assembly was actually supposed to be representative of all the world. Well, if every representative in the general assembly represented 10 million people from a country, then China and India would have like 140 votes apiece, and America would have like 33. Now, it seems I'm not going to run through the whole thing, but it seems kind of obvious to me that in that scenario, where if all you needed was 50 plus one percent to have your will, China and India combined would be 70 percent on the way there. And they could certainly bully in a few other Asian countries to get to the majority. Is the world a happier place if those countries get to vote away democratically? all sorts of uh, things that we prize and cherish here in the United States? Of course not, right? If they vote to get rid of free speech, well, it's democratic. That doesn't mean it's right. You know, as I often say, democracy is just a doctrine that says 51% of the people can pee in the cornflakes of 49% of the people. You need other stuff. You need things like national charters or constitutions, bills of rights that, you know, uh, put limits on what government power can do, even when government is backed by the majority. Um, and my sense is that sort of even the sort of anti-globalist left 
you know, even if they wanted a global government and made the UN in charge of everything, they still wouldn't like the idea that small, little, culturally distinct countries like, I don't know, Bhutan or Nepal or, or Singapore, I don't know, you know, name, name the country or some boutique popular Latin American countries, that they could have all of their culture voted away by the global majority. And so if you're going to have a global federalism, you would have to have some rules in place that checked the power of the majority to do stuff. And some of them could be, you know, uh, ironclad things like in the Bill of Rights, but some of them would just be sort of procedural, like maybe having the global legislature split in two and the lower house be done by population and the upper house be done by country so that, you know, Costa Rica gets two senators and China gets two senators. Now, that would be, strictly speaking, somewhat undemocratic, even though the people in those countries would vote democratically for their, for their senator, their global senators. Um, but it would be a way in which the interests of distinct countries and cultures could express themselves and prevent being run roughshod by a global, minority, global majority. Well, that's exactly what the founding fathers were thinking about. That's exactly the argument. And, um, you know, the way I always explain it when I talk to college students about this stuff is I always say, look, um, imagine you have on your campus 10 dorms and everyone has to live in the dorms and you need to come up with, with the, what we called in, in my school, the, um, the social life policies or whatever, you know, we can come up with whatever label you want for, it. you know, the rules about when you can have parties, when you can have, when you have to have quiet hours. Um, what you can do in the hall, whatever, you know, all that sort of lifestyle stuff that makes it possible for some people to study and some people to have a good time and yada, 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 yada. Now, there are a bunch of different ways that you could come up with the system to do this. One, you could just leave it to the president, the sort of paterfamilias or tyrant of the university as microcosm of society. And he could come up with, or she could, or she could come up with one policy that applies to all 10 dorms. Um, or you could give it to the students and ask them to vote as a student body about what the policy should be for all 10 dorms. And under that scenario, you could see coalitions form of like party dudes, jocks, stoners, uh, deadheads, fish freaks, whatever you want to call them these days. I have no idea. And they could come up with a policy that says um, every door, you know, students can just let their freak flags fly, no rules whatsoever. And in a 51, if they cobble together a coalition of 51%, then they get to impose their vision of how all students should live on everybody. Or you could see a rival coalition form of uh, whatever, Mennonites, study geeks, uh, foreign exchange students, the kids who get shifted off to that table, Jogdish and those guys in Animal House, um, they could get a majority and they could have a policy of zero fun ever, no loud music, no parties, no playing ball in the halls, um, no beer on campus, all that kind of stuff. And they can impose it on all the students. Or you could do this crazy thing and say that within very broad guidelines, the students in each dorm could vote on how they want to live in their own dorm. And so some dorms would have different rules than other dorms. And if you happen to be in one dorm and you got outvoted, you could move to a dorm that more fits your lifestyle. That's the argument of federalism. And um, 
I know this isn't directly about the Electoral College, but the Electoral College is, is, an, is an important cog in that larger machinery of federalism. And there are all these people who just think it's just insane to think that states should have any serious political clout in our political system, even though it's been so diminished over the years. Um, Luke, my friend Lucas Thompson wrote a great piece about the Electoral College for National Review a couple of years ago, and he makes the very persuasive state, the, the case that the vast majority about this stuff is really just about California. That California is bummed, even though it has the most congressional seats, that it has only two senators. And if that's a real problem, let's just bust up California. But this idea that the Electoral College is this permanent imposition of red state rule is just nonsense. And there's also, there's not really also no way of, of getting rid of it um, without a constitutional convention. You could do this state compact thing. And while I'm against it, that's at least much more reasonable because at minimum, if it backfires, you could, you could um, repeal it pretty easily. All you would need is one or two states to say, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. And um, it would fall apart. But the idea of actually getting rid of the Electoral College is crazy talk, in part because you would have to just basically take a red pen to a huge chunk of the Constitution because there's nothing in there about, um, you know, directly electing presidents. There's also this mythology out there that's drives me crazy that the, um, um, that we're somehow this backward, antediluvian, retrograde state because we still select a president through something like the Electoral College. Now, it's true. There are very few countries left with anything exactly like Electoral College. In fact, there may be none with something that is, that is an Electoral College. But there is no country in Western Europe that directly elects um, a national leader without some sort of intermediating process or filter. Uh, go look at how they pick you know, the president or the chancellor or whatever in Germany and you know you have to get so many votes in this district and then in this state and then it goes to the bundestag and these various you know collectives you know make have these negotiations it's it's not just everybody vote for a guy and why people would really want that on the merits is beyond me um moreover in the united states we have a presidential system not a parliamentary system and in the presidential system we combine both the head of state and head of government and um the and with the exception i think of like brazil and benin and like a couple other countries no one else um uh directly elects a, a president like that and nor again do i understand why you would want to why do you think you would get a better outcome and i think ultimately the answer is it's just not about you know democracy it's about power um i have no faith that if the the math were reversed that um, Democrats wouldn't be extolling the Electoral College and Republicans wouldn't be denouncing it. It is just simply a way, and I, in, in fairness, there are a lot of conservatives who actually believe in the Electoral College, um, but I hold them somewhat distinct from Republicans, particularly today. And, um, but for the Democrats, it's just, it's just an argument, really an argument about power. Um, you know, if, 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 and you can tell in part because the way they talk about, they always want to, whenever they bring up that some low population red state has um, more power in government in the Senate, 
Um, they always talk about a red state one. They always talk about Montana or Wyoming. They never point out Vermont or Maine or, or New Hampshire or any or Rhode Island or Hawaii because they're voting the right way. It's only bad because of the, the states that are voting the wrong way. Um, and so, I mean, if I had my druthers, we would strengthen the Electoral College. I actually don't really mind the idea of electors voting and um, voting their consciences and stuff, but I, I, I need to think that one through a little bit more. Um, I also am somewhat open to the idea of a reform like First of all, I want to expand Congress, which I've talked about a bunch. But if you did the electoral co- electoral college based not on state but on congressional district, it'd be kind of interesting to see how that worked out. I'm not committing to that, but I was just thinking about that the other day. Um, so anyway, that's enough of the recap from the week. Uh, I do highly recommend that people listen to both podcasts this week. I got such amazing feedback about Andy Ferguson's episode, and I just love Andy. Um, and if you haven't listened to it, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, so this, I had this other notion. Um, for those of you who've read um, Suicide of the West, you know, I talk a lot about the birth of nationalism. And, um, oh, you should also listen to the Ron Bailey and Marion Tupi episode, which I thought was really great. And if you have kids, uh, particularly teenagers who are, um, constantly being fed gloom and doom from school and from Instagram and all that kind of stuff. I highly recommend listening to that one too, or just buying their book. Um, anyway, uh, back to, uh, the West. So as I was discussing a little bit with, with, with Ron and Marion, you know, one of my big complaints about people, which people have heard me say a bunch of times, I'm sure I always feel like I'm repeating myself. Um, one of my big complaints with like the the uh, enlightenment was awesome crowd is that they never talk about how there were different enlightenments and they had different consequences and um, you know the Scottish enlightenment good the English enlightenment good the American enlightenment good um, French enlightenment really good in the beginning goes off the rails German enlightenment kind of a mixed bag you know and um, and what one of the things that people don't really appreciate is that, you know, not only did Enlightenment give birth to sort of modern liberal democratic capitalism and all that, it also gave birth to communism. It also gave birth to nationalism. Um, it all comes out of that period. And um, but it occurred to me, you know, you know, one of my big complaints about the emphasis on uh, race, right? You know, how the Washington Post is now going to capitalize white and we're already capitalizing black. We're talking about, you know, white culture and all of these things as if there is a monochromatic, homogenous white culture. Um, I mean, that's just nonsense to me. Um, if, but the, the, res- this whole tumult, this whole response to, um, white supremacy or the whole, that whole coalition of arguments, uh, going back you know, for as long as I can remember. I mean, I remember the controversies in the eighties and nineties that even Barack Obama talked about, about how, um, pernicious it is to think that doing well in school is acting white. Um, 
the 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 sort of war on bourgeois values, which I think are really, 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 really important and a constant theme on this podcast, um, to equate them with white culture is to create a, a you know a permission structure that lets people reject bourgeois values. I think bourgeois values would by which I mean, you know, look, thrift, hard work, family cohesion, delayed gratification, um uh following the success sequence of getting as much school as you can before you get married, getting married before you have a kid, all of those things are universally applicable and good for people. And there's a, there's always been a radical left-wing hatred of the middle class, of the bourgeois. It goes back a very long time. Uh, Christopher Lash writes a great deal about it. Uh, there's this just you know, and it manifests itself in different ways in different eras, man in the gray flannel suit, the war on the suburbs, um, American beauty, which was such an evil movie. Um, there's this idea that somehow the suburbs, because they're bastions of bourgeois values and a kind of small C conservatism, that they're bad and they're holding back the romantic bohemian culture that we could all be living in, you know, with just bong hits and hemp galore. And, uh, and the contempt that, you know, contempt for the bourgeois is a transnational thing going back to, you know, uh, 1700s France and Germany. It's, it's, a, it's a thing in the West. And for all I know, it's a thing in or all around the world. And the thing that scares me about these days is that it's, it's always been there and it's always been bad and always creeps up in Hollywood and in literature and in music. But this switch to saying that the bourgeois values of the middle class are um, distinctly white in nature is such an evil thing to do because of what it's basically doing is telling people who aren't white, who would greatly benefit from adopting bourgeois values, that somehow it's a kind of cultural heresy um, or betrayal to follow the same route to success that various immigrant groups in this country pursued, that we are now lumping all together under white, and also, um, you know, uh, the ever-increasing numbers of Asian immigrants who, are, who follow the same sort of bourgeois values, you know, which are not inherently christian values there's a lot of overlap obviously we don't need to get into max weber and all that but you know hindu americans are not motivated by the protestant work ethic but they are motivated by a bourgeois work ethic and that's good enough and uh same thing for jews jews aren't motivated by a a, a protestant work ethic or anything of the sort but they are well i shouldn't say anything of the sort but they are profoundly motivated by these sort of bourgeois values. It was part of their survival strategy for thousands of years is to look out for one another, work hard, save, um, care about your family, uh, delay gratification. You know, all of that stuff is, is a huge part of the social success of Jews, uh, not just in America, but all around the world. And that's one of the reasons why, and I should say this on Russia Shoma, uh, what an unbelievable gift to the world, or I should say, well, gift to the world is true too, but what an unbelievable gift to Jews the United States of America was. Because it was really in this country that the habits that kept the Jews alive um, 
for millennia were now uh, habits that let it prosper, let Jews prosper. And um, taking, you know, the shackles off Jews and letting them participate fully and freely in a, in a democratic market economy was great for the Jews. And it's great for everybody if you bring to the market economy those kinds of bourgeois values. And I have every confidence that this is, you know, as it's true for black people and Hispanic people, as it is true for white people and Jewish people and Italian people and all the rest. It is a... Um, it is a formula for success. Not, it's not a guarantee, but in the statistical aggregate sense, it kind of is a guarantee. There will always be outliers. There will always be people who have misfortune. But the best way to build up a prosperous society full of prosperous middle-class people is to pursue some version of these kinds of basic moral um, precepts or guardrails about your behavior. Anyway, so what got me thinking about all this was as I was saying about the enlightenment stuff, when by the time, uh, Germany starts having its enlightenment induced, um, nationalist awakening, it's really, it was really kind of one of the more interesting things I, I studied up and learned a lot about when I was working on the book. It was sort of fascinating to me how for these, uh, German nationalist intellectuals and statesmen and political figures and all the rest, how um, anti-Frenchism defined so much of their nationalism. And because anti-Frenchism was also, in sort of the same way I was just saying about how anti-whiteism is kind of a stalking horse for anti-bourgeoisism, um, Anti-Frenchism was also a stalking horse for anti-enlightenment thinking. Because remember, it's first it's the French revolutionary armies that bring um, you know, the enlightenment basically at the tip of a sword to places like, you know, the the German principalities or princely states and all that. And um, and then, you know, in short order, the revolutionary armies become the Napoleonic armies. And the Napoleonic armies were uh, much less ideologically or idealistically committed to the Enlightenment and much more committed to sort of French national greatness and French nationalism. And I should be very clear, the French revolutionaries were almost uniformly, with the exception of a couple of the good guys, hardcore nationalists as well. Um, and this notion that I know, I mean, the, 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 the good PR that the French Revolution gets about the universal rights of man and all that kind of stuff often sweeps under the rug the real blood and soil serious french nationalism that motivated so many of the jacobins including people like robespierre um and their commitment to this idea of chosenness and they really did believe they were the new israel chosen by god to lead the world and yada 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 and then you get napoleon who i don't think really believed a lot of that stuff he just was i don't think he was necessarily messianic he was just sort of uh um concerned with he was he was egocentric and um and authoritarian and narcissistic and wanted power for himself so he can use ideas like that um but i don't know whether he how much of that stuff he actually believed anyway um the the napoleonic forces do all sorts of crappy things in alsace and other places um in the in the germanic world i guess we can call it 
And at the same time, uh, a lot of, or even prior to this, a lot of the major statesmen of, of the German world, most importantly, Frederick the Great, um, were unabashed Francophiles, spoke French in court, did most of the government business in court in French, um, were uh, really bought into the idea that, um, that France was the light of the world and all of that stuff. And for the German nationalists, this was a thing to rebel against, sort of like, you know, Brexit versus the EU. And, um, and so, so much of German nationalism was as a counterpoint to, was, it was sort of focused, first of all, on the, I should say on the German language, which was a rebellion against the French language. Um, uh, you know, there were these lines where like, what is it? Johan Herder talks, you know, says, oh, my German people spit out the slime of the Seine um, and speak your own, you know, own glorious German language. And, uh, um, and so the idea of nationhood in Germany, which was an exciting idea at the time, because unlike France, Germany was broken up into, I don't know, dozens, 40 little German states with, with, with um, Prussia being the big one. And this sort of anti-Frenchism was, which is not the Sorab anti-Frenchism, but the actual anti-Frenchism was um, a way to sort of stitch together the case for nationalism. And so when you think about it in that context, going all the way back to the black nationalism of the 1960s with the Black Panthers, where or even the 1920s with Marcus Garvey, where they, you know, were in the rise of Nation of Islam, for example. Um, not the anyway. Um, the this tendency to conflate American culture, for want of a better term, or bourgeois culture with race, makes a lot more sense to me. And I don't really, I'm not sure I really connected those dots in the same way that the sort of revolutionary nationalism or the romantic nationalism that is born in the early 1800s as a response, as a counter-reaction to the Enlightenment, um, is very similar to, at least rhetorically, to a lot of the stuff that we're getting today and we've been getting for the last 50 years when it comes to, to the racial argument. Uh, you know, the 1619 Project, which I do think, while it has interesting things in it and not all of it is terrible, at, at the conceptual level and in its intent, it is a truly pernicious and terrible thing. Um, uh, but this, this wholesale rejection of America and what it stands for. And, you know, we now see these surveys where kids are told or tell, tell people that they think that the founding fathers were villains. Um, it's very, it seems to me it has this very strong echo from the same sort of stuff that you saw on, in at the rise of German nationalism against the French Enlightenment, which no no one in Germany at the time really wanted to do the hard intellect. Well, I shouldn't say no one. There were probably lots and lots of people, including probably Frederick the Great. But none of the people who were pushing for for German nationalism wanted to bother to pick out the universal and abstractly good elements of the French Enlightenment. And say this stuff is good, and this stuff is bad, 
and this stuff is applicable to Germany as it is applicable to everybody else in the world. Instead, they just rejected it whole cloth and invented a German ideology that was specific to Germany um, that throughout the 19th century uh, has done enormous damage to the world. I, I got to say, I mean, long forget, forget Nazi Germany and all that kind of stuff. The role of German historicism, uh, the role of German social science, uh, the, the, the push for relativism, all, a lot of these things just basically come out of Germany and, and even, you know, things like biological racism, they have their roots in the German nationalist stuff about the innate and unique superiority of the German language. And, um, um, and anyway, I just think it's an interesting thing. One could take the analogy too far, but comparing a lot of the sort of black liberationist and black lives matter thinking to what the thinking was of, uh, 18th and 19th century Germans in their, uh, understandable rebellion against what they considered to be, um, an authoritarian and illegitimate imposition upon them. Um, I think the similarities there are interesting and worth thinking about more. And maybe I'll write about it at some point. Um, since I brought all this, all that stuff up, I guess I should say two quick words about, uh, this patriotic education stuff and Trump's attack on critical race theory and, and all that. Um, I'm already exhausted by it. Uh, I feel a little weird because, you know, his attacks on Howard Zinn and a lot of the stuff that he saw from the excerpts of his speech could have been cribbed straight out of suicide of the West. But I, I got to tell you, the last person I want making my arguments or trying to make my arguments is Donald Trump. Um, because whenever he picks up, and I've been saying this for a very long time now, whenever he picks up, picks up a legitimately good or philosophically or, 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 or politically sound idea, he messes it up. And, um, you know, I mean, the example I always use, because it's a funny one, is his taking up, you know, this righteous cause of Mike Gallagher in mind of uh, making Greenland part of America. Now, I think there is, I, I honestly believe, I mean, I know it's half baked, but I honestly believe there are a lot of good and strong arguments for peacefully annexing Greenland to the United States. I mean, let's put it this way. If Greenlanders were all in on the idea, I think we should do it tomorrow. But that they're, because they're not in on the idea, um, I don't think we should go to war and seize it. Um, but I think, you know, if we could persuade them over the course of a decade or a generation that their that residents there would have their, their interests best served by being part of the greatest country in the world, I'd be all in favor of it. And I don't care if it adds two Democratic senators or whatever. Um, but the second Donald Trump picks it up, it becomes a laughingstock position. Now I will concede that it was pretty close to the edge of a laughingstock position already, but now it's just, it's not something that you can really talk about. And, um, you know, he's probably done more damage to philosophically serious and consistent nationalism of the kind that, that my friend Rich Lowry, you know, champions, uh, than any critics of nationalism could have. And so I just think, you know, it's a clear, that mean he's wrong about everything. And I know people, are, well, you know, why, do you, why wouldn't you want to support a president who's on your side of these big and important arguments? It's because I actually want to win the arguments. 
I don't want to win. And winning the arguments isn't about cobbling together enough um, existentially panicked people um, to vote for him in the, the election. Winning the argument is actually about winning the argument, persuading people. And I just don't think he persuades anybody who isn't already on his side and already convinced of his greatness. Um, and when he picks up good and serious arguments and bends them to his own narcissistic political ambitions and, and partisan need to get reelected, um, it taints them in ways that make it very difficult to persuade people. And um, so I wish, I wish some previous Republican had done a serious effort to engage in some of these issues. I mean, in fairness, some of these issues hadn't ripened to the point where they are now. Um, I really would have loved it if Barack Obama or any other Democrat, but really Barack Obama had taken this stuff seriously or more, I should say more seriously. Barack Obama, to his credit, actually has given as president a few pretty good speeches on some of these issues. They've just all been memory holes. And in fact, I think that one of the reasons why the sort of Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, even though he loved Barack Obama, but that sort of, or the 1619 Project vision has taken so much hold um, on the left is precisely because Barack Obama turned out to just be a normal American president, arguably kind of mediocre given the, the ambitions that the left had for him. And, um, and so he's sort of written off as sort of a, you know, there's a lot of personal, you know, personal admiration and warmth for him. But as for his presidency, I think the consensus is on the serious left that it was a wasted opportunity. And, um, and I think that's kind of a shame because of one of the things that I really would have, you know, I mean, I, I was very happy that America elected its first black president. I was just sorry that our first black president um, hadn't been, say, Colin Powell or something like that. Um, but I do think it was a good thing for America to have a black president. And I think it was um, um, a shame that he wasn't a more successful president or that he was incapable of persuading a lot of people on some of this stuff. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. And it takes two to tango. And there are lots of other factors in there. And I'm not going to start that 50 minutes into this thing. Um, but uh, anyway, I would love it if previous elected leaders had dealt with a lot of these issues in a better way um, to head them off, which is, you know, one of the things that we forget leaders are supposed to do is actually anticipate problems and deal with them before they become crises. And, um, and sometimes it's just the task of being on record saying something, um, of shining a light on something. Um, it doesn't have to be some massive federal program or anything like that. Um, but that's a, that's a bygone, you know, an almost quaint expectation of our political leaders at this point where, um, everything is in the, in the moment and everybody is obsessed with the fierce urgency of now. And, um, so anyway, uh, I think Trump in the abstract is probably more, it's certainly more on the right side of the argument than, uh, the 1619 project is, but I think he is more likely to be a disastrous messenger for 
these arguments in part because the guy cannot credibly uh, talk about history in a knowledgeable way. Um, he has no knowledge to speak of about American history. And the stuff that he thinks he has knowledge about is often um, bogus internet memes that he's been told are history. And uh, that, is so, that is the kind of person who cannot win hearts and minds about anything, but he can persuade a lot of people that concern with these kinds of issues as is expressed in, in, my, in my book and a lot of other books are really just sort of uh, partisan brickbacks. And that's the last thing I wanted for any of this kind of stuff. Remember, I wrote that whole book in a desperate and some might argue futile ex- attempt to actually persuade people who disagree with me rather than just simply do fan service to my own side. Um, and I think because I did that, I got some pretty shabby treatment from my own side and from the other side. And, you know, if I were inclined to indulge my grievances, maybe next Festivus I will, I would go into more details about that. But um, other than that, everybody have a wonderful Rosh Hashanah. Please sign up even just for the free stuff to the dispatch if you can. Uh, Let me know how I can make these solo things better or whether I should even keep doing them because I always feel so weird about these things and I And I spend the next few days wondering, or like the next 24 hours until the thing comes out, like, holy crap, what did I say? Did I say that right? Did I say that wrong? Because I got no script here. Um, And um, it just feels so damn weird. So anyway, uh, have a great weekend and I'll see you next time.